You're listening to Amphibicast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me again. Uh, I want to thank everybody for the past couple of weeks for the nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcast. It's definitely helped the show. There's been a couple of really nice reviews that's come out lately. So, again, if you guys have a chance, take a few minutes, give me a nice review. It really helps improve the reach of the show, and that's definitely what I've been wanting to go for is a larger audience. And um, all in all, it's beginning of summer here in the U.S. Weather's been changing. Hope everybody's enjoying it. I posted a video on social media a while back of some frogs calling. And, uh, you know, if you get a chance, get out into your local area and check out some calls because this is the time to enjoy it. Sometimes we forget about that in the hobby that uh, there's wild frogs out there too. And here in the U.S., this is the perfect time to hear them. But we're not really going to talk about frogs out in the wild or anything like that in this episode really that we're going to focus on husbandry and captivity and kind of really a, a i don't want to say a new line of thinking but um really just how the thought process has progressed in the hobby really over the past you know 20 years i mean 30 if you count the time when i started so as hobbyists we all have our own preferred methods when it comes to husbandry and everyone from beginner to advanced keeper has ideas about what justifies those methods and in fact, there are many different lines of thinking when it comes to husbandry, but I think we all agree that the goal should really be to see that the animal's needs are met in the best way possible. Well, what does that mean? How are we meeting an animal's needs? On a basic level, we should strive to create a captive environment that it provides an animal with proper food, lighting, water, and obviously freedom from unnecessary stress, pain, or disease. Well, these needs seem very basic at face value, and guess what? They are. So what's the next step? Where can we go from here? Is there a higher level of keeping? Well, animal husbandry in general has advanced significantly, like I said, within the past two decades, really three when it comes to herps in particular. There's a huge market out there for herp-related products, and in particular, amphibian-focused products have made themselves a presence in the market and are growing more so day by day as the hobby catches on and more people become involved in it. There are really plenty of resources out there now that allow people to accomplish more than bare bones keeping. And most of us in the amphibian hobby, uh, as a general rule, especially dart frog hobbyists like myself, we do have high standards of care in part because amphibians are by and large not as robust as other species of exotics. And um, it's also much easier to get information on a desired species that you intend to keep as opposed to the way it would have been in the past. We, we kind of forget the fact that we have the internet now, which, I, I mean, I didn't have when I was a kid in the, you know, in the 80s and 90s. So we don't really have to look too far to find resources online that can help us in determining a care plan for our desired species. We can search for scholarly articles on behavior and reproduction. We can follow weather patterns across the globe. We can subscribe to online journals. And, of course, we can take some cues from zoos and aquariums even if they're continents away, thanks to platforms like YouTube. Well, in, enough of the explanation. I really want to get into it tonight because tonight my guest, uh, he's de dedicated, he actually has his own podcast, which is essentially dedicated to higher level keeping. And uh, if you haven't already guessed it, I'm talking about Dylan Parent from the Animals at Home podcast. So, uh, Dylan, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I've actually been looking to get you to come on and talk with me for quite some time. So, uh, thanks for... Uh, Thanks for making some time to talk to me tonight. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm looking forward to this and fantastic intro. You just rattled that off. No problem. That was fantastic. Yeah, I pulled that off with no rehearsal whatsoever. Wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks. So before we get into it, I always like to kind of get everyone's backstory here. So 
why don't you tell us what your story is? How did you start off with, with reptiles? Because I know, I mean, you're, you're more of a reptile person, even though this is an amphibian show. I think that there is some crossover between the two genres or niches, whatever you want to call them. But why don't you tell us your earliest experiences with animals and what led you to where you are today? Well, it's funny because I think we will start with frogs because I grew up in the country. I grew up you know, sort of on a farm in Canada. I'm from Canada, for those who don't know, in the province of Manitoba. And I live in the prairies. And the prairies are this sort of bizarre place in Canada where it gets extremely cold in the winter and really, really hot in the summer. So, And we don't really have a huge amount of herpetological life out there in the wild. But we do have a fair amount of frogs and a couple of snake species and whatnot. But when I was growing up, I've always had this passion for animals. I don't think it really tilted one way or the other. I always had a love for nature in general. And, but I was fortunate enough to have a swimming pool in our yard, an in-ground swimming pool. And in the summer, frogs constantly were falling in the pool. So every morning I would go out and collect the frogs, leopard frogs, different toads, wood frogs from the pool. Sometimes you'd be lucky enough to find a great tree frog and I would collect them and make sure they, you know, didn't die or whatever. Sometimes I would keep them. And so that was probably, I would say like some of my very first keeping and husbandry was keeping these little frogs for a little short amount of time. I, I have this memory of of a toad. I don't know if it was a Canadian toad or an American toad, but I set it up in an aquarium and I think it was like the next day I hear my mom screaming because she found it in a house plant. So those are like my earliest memories of, of keeping, keeping animals. And, and then, so from there on, I collected, you know, several different pets along the way, fish and birds and whatnot. But eventually I got into keeping reptiles. I think I was in 2007. So not that long ago, I think I was 16. So, but it did start with frogs, surprisingly enough. And listening to you talk about going outside and listening to the frogs calling is sort of bringing me back to those times. It, it, it's funny because when I was a kid, we did have the same thing. Frogs were a real big presence where I live. And as time went by, a lot of them started to disappear or become restricted to certain spaces. Like the property that I work on now, we've got three species that are pretty active. We've got American bullfrogs. We've got, um, uh, we have, I've heard gray tree frogs. I've heard spring peepers. And there's a couple of other little odds and ends that I've seen here and there. But what decided you to go from like, just kind of like watching things out and kind of feel collecting them to becoming more of like a serious keeper? Well, I don't know if, if there was anything, I, I think that just this fascination with animals has always been there. So I, I think, you know, gravitating towards keeping them was just a natural progression. And, and I remember how I got into reptile keeping in the first place. I was in Safeway. I don't know if you guys have Safeway in the United States. It's like Sobeys or a grocery store. And I, I was checking out of the grocery store. They had these impulse purchase Venus fly traps. There's a whole bunch of them. So of course I bought this Venus fly trap. I'm like, this is so sweet. And I went home and and started researching it. And then I realized, wow, it's way too dry where I live. I have to make it this vivarium to make it sure, you know, that it was to make sure that it wouldn't die. And this was like back in the early days. There was like barely any YouTube. I think I was watching like eHow videos, which are like the most horrendous videos on the internet. And I read this whole article about how to set up this vivarium to make this plant live. And at the end, the last line was, now that your vivarium is set up, if you're interested, you could add an animal like a, like a frog or a small lizard or a gecko. And, and that's really what made me remember like, wow, I could actually keep these animals. I kind of forgot that you could own these animals as pets. So that's what led me to get my first crested gecko. Of course, the Venus flytrap died pretty quick and it wasn't long after where I had the first crested gecko, but I had him for, I still have him. He's 15 years old. He's sitting right behind me. And I had him for about eight years before I even got a second 
reptile. So I, I don't even consider myself being part of the keeping hobby or focusing on advanced care at all during those times. It just sort of was a pet at that time. And then it sort of snowballed once I started getting more animals and a couple more geckos and whatnot. Yeah, the snowball effect and the, the keeper bug is definitely something that it, it, it happens to us all. But, and it comes in stages because it'll come and go throughout your keeping career. I, yes, it does. I, I do want to get into that. And I do also want to get into the, the concept of the disposable pet because what you said about the Venus flytrap is interesting. If there was a disposable plant pet, Venus flytraps are definitely the disposable plant pet. But um, <laughs> Yes, yeah. I mean, since our conversation is going to focus primarily on high-level keeping, I know that this is a subject that's pretty close to home to you. Why don't we kind of give it a definition first? I mean, in your opinion, what would you consider high-level keeping? Well, it, it's a tough thing to define because, you, you know, there, for a few reasons. The first is high-level keeping is something, is a moving target all the time because, you know, keeping animals in your home is science. There's no way around it. Even if you are not, don't consider yourself an at-home scientist, you're still participating in science. You're keeping something alive at home. So that line moves as science evolves, as we learn more about how light impacts them, how varied diets impact them, how, you know, so on and so on. So that is sort of a perpetual moving line. And then the second thing is, is I, I would hesitate to define it in a, in a concrete term because, you know, a newcomer might look at that and go, wow, there's no way I could possibly do that. That's just way too much expense. It's way too many things. So I would say, you know, this is sort of a rambling definition, but for one, the definition that I have for high level keeping sits around natural replication. So I think that is like the foundation of high level keeping, making sure keepers are focused on replicating natural environments to produce and induce natural behaviors. And we'll get into more of what that means maybe a little bit later, but I would say that is sort of the heart of high level keeping. And then also associated with that for me, and I think this is really important to include, is the idea of progression uh, progression to that. So I don't expect someone that goes out to buy their first reptile to start with this real deep knowledge of the natural habitat and natural history like that would be fantastic but it's obviously not always going to be the case but what i want to see is somebody that's dedicated to knowing that their husbandry isn't static and that it's going to perpetually progress as they have this animal in their life so i would say those are the two pillars of high level keeping a focusing on the natural behaviors and natural environment and b being dedicated to progressing your care that would be the skeleton of it I think that's great, particularly what you said about it not being static and not necessarily being something that you can define. It's almost like, um, uh, I'm trying to think of a good way to put this. I guess like the light at the end of the tunnel, constantly trying to get to that light and not getting caught up in where you are, just kind of focus on where you're going and improving your husbandry as a whole. Exactly. Yeah. Has that influenced you in terms of some of the species that you're working with today? I mean, I know you have you don't have a tremendously large collection, but do you want to share some of the animals that you're keeping nowadays? Yeah, so I have my reptile story is very short. You know, we were talking about that snowball effect. So I had that first crested gecko, and then I got a day gecko. You know, eight years later, and then shortly after that is when my snowball effect happened. So I got a couple of boas, like. Uh, two boa imperators or boa imperators, a Brazilian rainbow boa and a jungle carpet python. And that's where my collection stopped. So I've never 
traded animals. I've never had an animal die on me, knock on wood. These are the six animals that I've always had. And I would say, as I started to learn more about reptile husbandry, it wasn't until after I was already at this, you know, at least five or six animals, I was really starting to contemplate how ethical it is to keep these animals at home, which sort of pushes you towards, you know, if, if I'm questioning whether or not I should keep these animals, if it's ethical to even keep these animals in captivity, you're sort of forced into the high, high level care space because you want to provide as much as you can for them. So as I was adding animals to my collection, I hit that wall and I realized, wow, I have to pump the brakes on buying animals. I'm nowhere near as good at caring for them as I need to be. So that was like years ago. I think 2018 is when I bought my last animal and I haven't bought another one since and I probably won't buy another one <clears throat> for at least a little bit of time because I'm still working on you know, improving care. So, so to say, I would say yes, I would say no, the high level care hasn't actually influenced the animals I keep because I haven't purchased any animals since I've been influenced by this philosophy. All I've done is sort of pump the brakes and just focused on what I have and trying to improve their care before I allow myself to, you know, acquire another animal. Did this line of thinking come from anywhere in particular? I mean, did anyone sort of influence your thought process or is this just sort of a conclusion you came to on your own? There were sort of a number of things that happened. So I would say first, I started noticing the classifieds, like the local sort of Craigslist equivalent that we have in Canada. It's called a Kijiji. And I, I just was noticing a lot of reptiles and amphibians on that, but mostly reptiles on that site and, and animals that were in really rough shape. You know, even yesterday I was on there and I saw a, ball, a normal ball python in this horrible homemade contraption cage with like a literal, literal like ice cream pail for a water dish. And this thing was $700. This is what it was listed at. And I was just thinking like, this is where the hobby is, you know, this is where we're gone wrong. But anyway, I was seeing a lot of things like that. And so that made me start to think like, you know, there are some ethical implications with keeping these animals in captivity because there's a lot of people that aren't doing a great job. So I had already started my YouTube channel at that point And my YouTube channel was just sort of very random. All I was doing was sort of DIY projects. And I was really, st- I stumbled across this quote that said, the better your care, the more your animal will reward you with their fascinating natural behaviors. So when I saw that, that really changed my mindset. I said, oh, that is so true. It is so true that the reason I keep these animals is because I want to see them behave naturally. You know, I always use this example now to my listeners is, what would you rather do? Look at a picture of an animal or watch planet Earth? Or would you, what would you rather do? Watch planet Earth or go on a safari, right? You're always trying to get closer and closer to be in person watching that animal do what it does. It's not as exciting to just look at a static image. So that's when I really realized, wow, we we have to do a better job to make sure that our care is replicating their natural environment so I can actually watch my boa act like a natural boa. But the problem with that line of thinking is eventually you get to the point where, you know, I got to is like, should I even keep these animals? You know, if if the best thing I could do for them is to replicate, you know, the Amazon rainforest, shouldn't they just be in the Amazon rainforest? Why is it that I have them in my room? Is this just 100% selfish? So that was sort of the path that I went down. And that's really what the podcast was is designed for is me answering that question. Is it ethical? Is there is there anything else other than selfish reasons that I keep these animals? And is there anything that I can do to sort of justify their captivity? And I think there are, and we can get into that a little bit later. But I would say those are the sort of the main events that led me to think, 
we need to push for high level care. And then the, the third event that happened was I realized one of the best things I could probably do was support a conservation, a charity. You know, if I have these animals, maybe I could actually financially support these native locations where these animals are from. So yes, these animals have been pulled from the wild, but can I take some of my money that I make from the podcast or YouTube and divert that into protecting the land that they're naturally from? And when I approached a charity to do that, they they basically refused me. They said, you know, we'll take your donations, but we don't want to do it. We don't want you to do it publicly because we don't want to be associated with the pet trade. Now, I've mended that bridge and we have a great relationship now and and one of their proud supporters and we've raised about a thousand dollars for them which is amazing but that's what really made me realize like that was that's the mainstream opinion of us and we need to fix that if we want this hobby to grow and thrive yeah that's not the first time i've heard that about um trying to engage a conservation or especially conservation organizations because on their face, many of them are very anti-hobby. And um, I can tell you from what I, what you've just told me from my own personal experience and from a few other people, it, it really does seem to be a thing. But, I mean, my motivation in starting this podcast was somewhat similar in terms of that I, I want the hobby to maintain credibility and I want it to be held to high standards so that when it comes time to justify keeping these animals, I can say, well, listen to me. I'm not so much of a keeper as I, I guess you could maybe use the word custodian. You know what I mean? You're, you're responsible for the animal's care and well-being. And I don't like to think that I'm doing it for selfish reasons. I like to think that I'm doing it for, uh, I guess, somewhat productive reasons. But um, it, it can be very difficult to cultivate a relationship with people who are very, very dead set on protecting the species at any cost and they do look at the hobby as kind of a stereotypical i mean bad guy so do you think that you've kind of improved somewhat of the the public perception by interacting with people who are really bigger proponents of conservation than the hobby per se well it's hard to say how much impact i've personally had on with the show i think the message that the show delivers is having an impact. It's not just me that's delivering that message. So I would say we are moving in the right direction. You know, we talked a little bit off air. You've had some conservationists on and and some biologists and whatnot. And, you know, you said in the same experience that I've had is they're actually for the hobby. They actually don't have an issue. So it's not that every person in that sector, in the public sector, doesn't agree with us. But I do think we we are making the right strides towards that. And, you know, one of the lines of argument that I use with the charity when I was trying to donate to them, which is kind of a funny line to, to say, was, you know, I have people following me who, who love snakes. And I, I asked them, how many of those people right now are donating to your cause? And the answer was none. So I said, I have I have a whole bunch of people that are going to, that absolutely love snakes. They don't want to see them disappear off the earth. We keep them. That's how much we love them shouldn't we use some of that excitement and you know interest in these animals and 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 move that into your charity and and so that's was sort of what won them over and i think that message will win more conserva- conservationist type uh, corporation or not corporations or charities over because they they see it. it's like it's sort of like a sleeping giant in a way a lot of people who keep these animals are happy to promote that message they just don't know how they don't know what they do maybe if 
we had a reoccurring $1 donation to several different charity options, that would be something that would be very easy for reptile keepers to contribute to. But that connection is just not there because like you said, they see us as a detriment and not as uh, an asset. Yeah, and I find that to be... I find it distressing because, look, at the end of the day, the people who are obsessed with certain exotics... The maj- I like to think that the majority of which, I mean, got our first experiences watching things on TV or maybe seeing them at a, I mean, it, I mean, it could be a, lo- a local reptile shop, a local um, pet store, wherever. But a lot of it is also a function of conservation because a lot of the nature documentaries and things like that that I used to watch when I was a kid, that was my first exposure. And I became so hooked on it that I really wanted to immerse myself into that world. And it's very, very hard to be in this world and not have some idea of what's going on with animals in their natural habitat or, um, you know, you you might want to get involved in a level outside the hobby. And for me, it just seems silly to not have that other side of the world, so to speak, you know, welcome you with open, open arms. So, I mean, I've had a lot of people on this show who have done a tremendous amount for conservation, captive breeding processes. Um, it really, it, it runs the gambit, Edu- public education, et cetera, all that stuff. And I'm happy to have them on the show because it really gives something. I, I like to think that it gives a, boy, a voice to both par- to both parties because I don't like to draw sides. I understand that everyone has their own perspectives, but I, I totally see what you're going about trying to, you know, mend that broken bridge between the two worlds because i mean at the end of the day you know charities should really they they should want your money and you should want to give to a charity that is about something that you really really like yes exactly and so maybe quickly i'll I'll just run through so you know i had mentioned a little while ago that my podcast was a quest to answer the question is keeping animals only a selfish endeavor or other are there positive things that are actually positive for the animal because it has to be positive for the animal and it's and if it's not then the equation doesn't work so sort of the four things that i think are very beneficial from reptile keeping or, or herpetoculture the first is as we talked about conservation so that comes in captive breeding, it comes in making donations. There are several different ways we contribute to conservation. The second is actually contributing to the scientific literature. There's been tons of the public and the private sector working together in order to write research. You know, one of my friends, Lori Torini right now, she's this amazing snake keeper, keeper who does a lot of work with training snakes. She's working with a master's student right now and they're working on a paper. So those are type of sort of things that happen all the time. So we do actually contribute to the scientific literature and quite often we, the hobby breeds animals in captivity before it happens in the public sector. Not always, but it does happen quite often. So that's so that's one a second thing. The third is introducing people to animals. You know, a lot of times the current biologists and conservationists and scientists had an experience as a kid with a captive animal, and that's what got them interested in it. And you know that it, the, an animal in person is a powerful tool for all sorts of things, right? You can get a kid interested in a snake by giving them a snake to hold, or you can get them interested in conservation by showing them the snake in person. This snake is under threat in the wild. It's a lot more powerful than just an image or, you know, a a video. And then the fourth is more keeper centric and that's, it gives people purpose. And I think it's something that we often don't, we often overlook, but for many of us, we participate in herpetoculture because it gives us something to do and it gives us something to pour creative energy into 
And, you know, there, there's lots of examples of people who use it to get over things, you know, addictions and depression and anxiety, and they use it to become a better person. And if you are a better person because of herpetoculture, that means that sort of radiates within the society. If I always use the example, you know, if I'm a better person coming from my reptile room, that means when I go to the bank to do my transaction, I'm going to be nicer to the teller and she's going to have a better day because of it. And it's going to ripple and that that's a good thing. We you don't want to just remove a hobby that people are solving some of their life problems with, and and that's somewhat a first world solution to first world problems. But I still think it's something important. So, as far as I can tell, there's at least those four really important pillars for why herpetoculture is not just a selfish endeavor, but there are actually benefits that we can have to society as a whole from participating in it. Well, the last one you said definitely hits close to home. I mean, I, I got back into the hobby after, I, you know, I, I went through some difficult personal times and I made some significant lifestyle changes. And um, getting back into the hobby was a very, very productive thing for me because it allowed me to put energy into something that was, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's it's harmless. You know what I mean? I'm building enclosures for frogs. I'm not out doing things that I shouldn't be doing. So it's a safe, productive positive hobby. And for me, it it really facilitated my recovery from, uh, you know, a a difficult time. And, um, it's funny because I had, I was, I was on one of the message boards. I was on arachno boards. Um, cause I know I go on and on about tarantulas more than frogs, but, um, uh, (laughs) someone had posted something to the effect that like, like, you know, look, I'm a, I'm a recovered addict. And, um, you know, I'm getting into tarantulas now. I mean, you know, is this really something good? And I, I replied to the guy. I said, look, man, I said, if at the end of the day, having a bunch of spiders keeps you from drinking or shooting up or whatever, then good for you. That's, that's not a bad thing. And that's a way that the hobby can be productive and, and life-changing for a, you know, for a substantial amount of people. There's a lot of people that fall into the hobby for those reasons, and they might not even necessarily realize it. But like you said, it's you know you're spending time doing something that's harmless and actually somewhat pr- productive and creative. Like you're gonna burn that energy somehow, so you can either put it into a hobby, and and like look at for yourself now. Now you have a podcast, you're doing, all, you're meeting all these people. Like how many the ripple effect for your life is just amazing. But even somebody who's just keeping at home with a couple of you know enclosures, a couple of vivariums with frogs that's energy that they're going to burn anyway. So if we can direct it into something positive, it's just so important. And and that, that's why no hobby ever mystifies me. I'm never mystified why someone goes and spends $15,000 putting a new engine into their car, $30,000, whatever it is, or collecting action figures or painting. And none of that mystifies me because to me, it's all the same. It's all that same you know creative energy that we want to engage in something where we're creating something with our hands. And uh, the hobby's brilliant for that, and it, it really is a refuge for a lot of people, and it's something that doesn't get talked enough en- enough, and it's incredibly important. Yeah, I agree. It would be hypocritical, uh, excuse me, hypocritical to um, criticize someone else for their hobby. I mean, keeping <laughs> keeping a bunch of snakes and frogs and spiders <laughs> and God knows what else. I mean, who 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 are we to judge someone else? Exactly. I wanted to talk a little bit about your perspective on the hobby because you you know you're younger than I am. I started keeping in the late '80s and the early '90s, and things have progressed a lot in the past 
30 years or so. And I'll, I'll, I'll give my input if you're curious about it, but how have you seen the hobby advance since you started? I mean, you got into the hobby, what, around 2007 or so you said, right? Which is, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a fairly long time. You know, it's, it's been, what is it, like 13 years or so. How have you seen the hobby progress from when you started as opposed to now, at least in terms of keeping practices, we'll say? Well, I would say the, the very first thing that comes to mind that's not necessarily keeping practice is social media and YouTube. I mean, that is within the last maybe six or seven years, that's really blown up. And I think back to when I first got my Crested Gecko, how little guidance I had. It's not like I was part of a reptile community in my hometown. It was just sort of like finding random forums or Yahoo Answers and things like that and just hoping he doesn't die. And I guess it worked out. But so so the wealth of information available is just unbelievable. But of course, that's a double-edged sword. You know, we could talk about that too later if we wanted, but there's tons of horrible information on the internet, but there's some really good stuff. And, and you can also meet people and have you know, virtual mentorships, which is something that wasn't around when I started, or at least wasn't as accessible. I mean, we had forums and whatnot, but it wasn't quite like it is today. I I would say other than that, the big ones are UV on the reptile side. And that's really only in the last seven, five, six, seven years or so. The providing ultraviolet light to most species has become sort of the standard. Uh, still, some people definitely disagree with it. A lot of people will say you don't need it for a lot of animals, but I think there's enough science to show that most species benefit from it. So that's a big one. Uh, even infrared light as well, providing a source of infrared A wavelengths, which you can really only get from a halogen heat source. So that's a really big one because most heat sources, especially in the snake world, are going to be your heat mats or your you know radiant heat panels. So that's a big change and we still haven't really, that hasn't really grabbed hold yet. It's relatively new, I would say probably in the last couple of years. Um, another thing is just understanding how smart these animals are. That That's something for sure, which is only within the last five or six years as well, is understanding that these are not just dim-witted reptiles that can't think. You know, they're actually co- capable of complex problem solving and, and, it is, and that's why the care standard needs to be higher than it is. So I would say those are some some really big things that's changed. There's definitely been, you know, even simple things like loose substrate for, you know, everyone laughs at loose substrate, but you know, there are still people out there today who will keep a leopard gecko or a bearded dragon on tile because they think loose substrate causes impaction. So we still have some of these weird myths that are floating around, but they're starting to get worked out. And and I think just in general, there's a push to more ethical and natural keeping that that wasn't there a decade ago it seems like a decade ago things were more focused on sanitization and making sure everything is clean and clinical and we're we're digging our way out of that so which i think is great i want to explain where that line of thinking came from because when i was when i was writing this episode up i was just thinking about i mean i know everyone jokes like i'm an old man i mean i'm only 42 i'm not like a thousand years old but Going back into the late 80s and early 90s, there was a reason for keeping animals in a very clinical and sterile manner. And the reason that the reason that reptile keeping didn't, or really any type of exotics keeping didn't advance for so long is because a lot of the animals that came into the hobby at the time were wild caught. A lot of them had very heavy parasite loads. A lot of them were really, really, really under a lot of stress. And yep. the conventional wisdom at the time was, don't look at it, don't touch it, don't do anything to it. You just have to keep it clean, quiet, and safe, and don't mess around with it. Don't try doing enrichment because you might stress the animal. And the other thing was the only information that you had at the time 
was what the local, local reptile store could tell you. Because you only had a couple of choices in the 80s. You had whatever the person in the pet store told you. So if that person was on point, then great for you. But if that person didn't really know too much, then it was bad for you and the animal, but you had no other choice. Other choices you had to go to, you had to go to the library. Or maybe if you knew local science teacher, there was maybe a local nature center or something like that. And maybe that person would be able to guide you. So there were no resources. So in my opinion, the reason that that way of keeping became so standard for such a long time was because there really weren't any alternatives. You didn't have the free exchange of information the way that you have today. So one of the reasons why a lot of those old timers got stuck into that method of like sterile keeping was because it was really the only way to keep animals alive in the infancy of the hobby. Because if you weren't keeping them clean and sterile and whatnot, uh, it was harder for them. I mean, arguably, you know, it, it is arguably, it was harder for them to acclimate. And then also the use of other things like substrate and lighting, et cetera, that was also a function of the reptile market, which really hadn't developed. And I can tell you this from personal experience. I worked at a local store in the early 90s and I had someone come into the store asking about a, uh, asking about a boa. What kind of substrate? I said, honestly, I said, you know, if you're worried, about, I mean, these were wild caught boas that, that came in from imports. But I said, you can keep the thing on paper towels. This way you keep it, you know, not paper towels, uh, newspapers, you keep it clean. And my boss read me the riot act. She goes, you can't tell them that. You have to buy, you know, this carpet and all that. I'm like, if the animal craps on the carpet, <sighs> you can't get it clean. And it's a lousy substrate. And she goes, just do as you told. I was like, all right. But again, that was, people didn't really know any better. And around that time, that was when I was starting to talk to other hobbyists who were more advanced and here and their input. But it was a really, really slow process. So I know like a lot of the younger people who were starting out or started off like a decade ago, kind of look at those times like, like what the hell was everyone thinking? But the thing is, nobody really knew any better. And the animals usually came in in such a bad sort because captive breeding wasn't really a thing that it was like, it was a crapshoot whether the animal lived or not. So you also didn't want to spend a lot of time and money on an animal that might die in your care really through no fault of your own because reptile medicine was also in its infancy. So I don't know. I hope that gives some insight in terms oh, yeah, of where, no, that, where that line of thinking came from. Yeah. And, and I think the most important part about, about that is that it worked, right? Because, you know, if they did add a piece of enrichment or try to set it up with a natural environment. Like you said, a lot of these animals were dying. So they gravitate towards what works and the sterile environment worked. And that's, and I've, I've actually had someone, uh, I think Dr. Zach Lofman on my podcast, he was telling me, saying that exact same thing. Like this is where those myths started because they weren't myths back then. They were what was required to make these animals get established, but then they just hung on, you know, after three or four generations of captive breeding, we got stuck in it. And, uh, and so that's what we're slowly growing out of. But yeah, I totally agree. And even now I, I'm not even against, you know, keeping an animal in a sterile quarantine setup. If it's like wild caught or even a new animal from a different breeder, like all of that, I think should be followed clean, sterile setups. It's just once the animal's established, you know, we have the, everybody should have the right to improve that from from there and you know there's still some parts of the hobby that doesn't agree with that but i think many of us are, are moving that direction yeah i think as individual hobbyists i mean i'm i'm kind of biased because i'm you know i'm primarily a frog hobbyist so for the most part we keep our enclosures pretty 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 fancy so um I haven't really, I mean, there's a couple of species of, I mean, I have, I have two blood pythons that I keep on paper towels, but 
that's just because that's what works for them. But at least in the frog hobby, especially the dart frog hobby, I shouldn't say the whole frog hobby, but we're kind of sticklers for detail, so to speak. So yes. um, if you've ever seen a dart frog vivarium, it's generally generally quite the production, although it doesn't necessarily have to be. But um, Well, I always use I always use dart frog keepers as example like look what they're doing over there why why are we not doing that because like you said they don't necessarily have to be kept that way although they are a little more sensitive and whatnot but there's this whole idea of of the entire package that comes along with dart frogs it's sort of a an expectation where you're setting up the enclosure you're planting the plants you're you know creating the water feature if you need one and whatnot where with the reptiles we sometimes get stuck with you know here's your animal and that's it where it really ought to be Here's your animal. How are you going to set up the enclosure? It, you know, like, you know, this is what fish keepers generally do a great job of that as well. It's the whole package, the equipment that you're going to use, the substrate, the the rocks and the decor, it's everything. But, you know, especially with snakes, geckos are a little bit better. There's lots of great gecko keepers and lizard keepers out there. But uh, I, yeah, I always go back to dark frog people and like, look at them. They're doing such a fantastic job and nobody's forcing them to do it. They just want to. No, it's it's true. And a lot of it, believe it or not, doesn't necessarily make it better for the animal per se. It also makes it easier for the keeper because right. frogs frogs crap a lot. They do. And it's just <laughs> easier to have a, a, a system that kind of cleans itself, maintains itself. Although I will say that there's that you do have to do maintenance. I think a lot of people are kind of under the impression that you set up a vivarium and it, you just plug it in and it goes. You don't have to do any maintenance. I mean, I have a plants to trim i have to change substrate every so often you have to change leaf litter there is some that goes into it but like the only thing i see about the the line of thinking when it comes to keeping dart frogs is i've seen the setup that we use for dart frogs sort of get carried over into other enclosure types where it really doesn't work i mean i've seen like just to break down like the the way dart frog vivarium works on a very basic level is I mean, obviously, these things come from from humid, by and large, mostly rainforest. So you get heavy rainfall, but the thing is that rain has to go somewhere. You know, these things don't live in, like, puddles. They don't live in this, like, swampy quagmire. They like to live on dry leaf litter, but they like the humidity. So that moisture has to go somewhere, and that's going to go down through the substrate and into a drainage layer where it either gets stored or drained out or whatever, and it's able to make its way back up into the substrate just as humidity, not as moisture. Well, I see a lot of people using these drainage layers and stuff like that that you'd use for a dart frog in these other types of enclosures where you really don't need it. If you're not soaking in soaking an enclosure substrate and expecting it to drain, you don't need a drainage layer of clay balls. You know what I mean? That's the only way I see. Yes. I, I see it kind of backfiring because I see people setting up an animal like I'm, I'm trying to think of a good example. Well, I would say any snake is a good example. I see lots of drainage layers with snakes and it's not necessary. Yeah, I agree. Like, if you have a missing system, like with your boas, I could I could understand it because you're going to want a place for that moisture to go because it's kind of the same premise. But I see people setting up like California king snakes with a drainage layer. I'm like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know what I mean? You don't. The, 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 that's not what that's for. But I don't know. <laughs> it's just one of those things. It's one of those, I guess, hobby quirks that kind of irks people in the dark frog community. <laughs> yeah yeah i know the dart frog people do get annoyed a little bit with the reptile keepers like bioactive this bioactive that and <laughs> it's just uh yeah we we we're, we're learning we we, <laughs> we 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 laugh at that term i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> oh i know yeah i mean that's a that's a whole other 
concept in and of itself. I mean, just to go on record, I, 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 I mean, no offense, I don't particularly like like the term. I think it's kind of become a buzzword that people automatically associate it as being a, a fundamental of good husbandry, and it, it can yes. be, but it doesn't always work. And there are certain situations where I just, I wouldn't employ that line of thinking. But if it's done correctly, yes, it can work, but you can't apply the dart frog template to every other type of situation. And that's what I see people doing. I mean, reptile keepers tend to be kind of catching on now that it's not so much about, you you know, by creating a natural environment, you're trying to create a biome. You know what I mean? Like you're trying to create the animal's natural environment. Don't create a dart frog environment for a ball python. You know what I mean? Yes. Just the same as you wouldn't create a ball python environment for a dart frog. Exactly. Yeah, that's such a it's such a good point. And it, we actually did a whole episode on basically why bioactive keeping is not the gold standard because it do, it absolutely has become a, a buzzword and you can have amazing, excellent care that's not bioactive. I mean, like I, I don't I don't have my snakes bioactive because they spend a lot of time on the ground. There's, I know that they get, I've had, you know, wood mites and whatnot have a, a breakout from some coconut husk substrate and in one of my enclosures. And it really annoyed my boa. He was constantly soaking. It wasn't, they weren't hurting him, but they were just crawling on him, you know, causing him stress and whatnot. So you can't exactly like you say, you can't just create a, you know, throw a couple of isopods in a bearded dragon enclosure and assume that you're going to have gold standard care. It's really about understanding the natural habitat and doing everything you can to replicate that, not just making a tropical environment that you see the dart frogs in. Yeah. And, and the other thing to remember is people like, people like to say that, you know, you're creating a natural environment and like that, that's cool. But remember, you're not creating a hundred percent of a natural environment, no matter what you do. Because I mean, the last time I checked, I don't know of any animal that actually lives in crushed coconuts in the wild. You know (laughs) what I mean? So exactly. I just, I see people, they have good intentions and whatnot, but I mean, on the same token, I feel like as a goal, uh, you know, as the goal to become a, a better keeper is that's kind of become a thing now. I, I see people more willing to kind of learn from their mistakes, like especially in the dart frog hobby, you'll see people start with kind of like a cookie cutter type of setup and they'll use the wrong substrate and then they realize, all right, well, cocoa fiber doesn't really work. I might want to move up to ABG or I want want to mix my own variant of ABG or I might want to use a different substrate altogether. I mean, that kind of becomes like the the stepping block, so to speak. Are you seeing that in the reptile world where people will sort of start out somewhere and then look to move upward in, in increments in terms of like how they want to progress their care? I would say for the most part, I do see that. And and that's what I try to promote as well. Like I always say, I don't care if you start with a drawer and a tub, as long as you have that, like I said before, that, that progression, that sense of how are you going to move your, your hobby forward? And yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, you be, and, like, you know, even talking about substrates, you see these people who, who want to have gold standard care and then they'll turn their nose up to Aspen as a substrate, for example, where it's like, oh, Aspen's not natural. Well, you could have an amazing enclosure with climbing branches and potted live plants and there's nothing wrong with using Aspen as, as a substrate. Like you said, this, you know, you're not going to find any animals out there, but it still works for what you, you're needing it for. The animal can still burrow and, and whatnot. So I, I think we do have to be careful that we're not all trying to, you know, do exactly what the what is in nature you 
you want to be get setting up an environment that allows the animal to behave naturally. That doesn't mean you're taking the same dirt that it has in, in its natural environment and bringing it into your enclosure. But I, I do see progression. I do see people starting to realize that, you know, these animals live a long time for, for the most part, and, and it gives us breathing room to improve their care. And the best part about that is, and, and this is what I try to promote, is how exciting it can be to make an improvement in, in enclosure. Because one of the big issues, and we kind of talked about it with some people having, you know, mental health issues or coming from addictions and whatnot, coming into the reptile and amphibian hobby, one of the worst things that happens is people get into that cycle of just buying an animal, buying an animal, buying an animal, and it becomes this never-ending cycle where your only gratification is when you go to the store or go to the expo and buy a new animal. So what I try to you know, tilt that focus towards making these incremental improvements and realizing how exciting it is to make a big change, make a small change, add different climbing branches, maybe slightly increase the enclosure size, change the lighting, and and just enjoy that process. So the more I can promote that message, the better. And I am seeing a lot of people starting to do that. Or I mean, not just from my show, but just in general, people are catching on to the fact that that is a a, a really fun part of the hobby is making those improvements. I agree with that 100%. And I, I can tell you, one of the things that's kind of, I guess, a common thought process in, in reptile keeping, or at least it's, at least it's something that I've seen quite often, is that people get the animal first, and then the, then the enclosure second. So like, I'll see, the, I'll see people go to expos, they'll buy, a, you know, they'll buy like, a, let's just say a chameleon, because chameleons are kind of like ubiquitous in reptile shows. They're like, almost like disposable pets but they'll go they'll buy a chameleon for like 20 bucks like a baby veil or a jackson's or whatever and then they'll buy like the hundred dollar chameleon kit or whatever and then they really have no idea how to keep it because they've just sort of bought it on impulse and that kit that they buy and as as any chameleon keeper like like bill strand will tell you over and over again that kit stinks you know what i mean it's only going to last <laughs> yes. you so long so it's almost like uh, you know ask questions later type of situation so, I, I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are about that, about going into it as, you know, are people going into it backwards? Are you buying the animal first and then worrying about the husbandry until it's too late? Or do you think that that line of thinking should kind of switch and we should get involved in creating the environment first and, and then introducing the animal to it? Yeah, I think that is exactly right. I think I think it is backwards. And I, I don't know exactly. I think there are a lot of things at play. I think the morph market really drop plays into that a lot because you're just focused on the animal and not even the animal you're focused on the color of its scales and that's it and that i think that's a major detriment to the progression of the hobby you know and i i always use this example like you know you can go to somebody's especially like a ball python morph keeper if you go to an instagram page what you're going to see is a whole bunch of photos of a bunch of different snakes with a bunch of different morphs and the owner is going to be holding the snake in their hand and all you're going to see is the animal and the owner's hand. And I'm not slamming these keepers, but I'm saying that is a perfect example of where we are in the hobby. It's like we aren't broadening our focus enough to include the whole package, the enclosure, the the natural replication, the behaviors. We're just we have this tight, narrow focus on just the animal, and and that makes it easy for people to just go out and buy new things because you you know especially if you're not worried about the carry, it's very simple to set up a tub, your heat mat, your water dish, you're good to go. You can continuously go and and pick up new animals. And I think 
you know, like with fish keeping, for example, there, there's that stage where you have to have the, the tank set up and go through your new tank syndrome and go through that nitrogen cycle and whatnot. I think that's so important to almost stop impulse buying because you have to set up the tank first and you have to let it go through this process before you can go add your fish. And, and we just don't do that for in the large part in the reptile community. And I think expos do play into that as well. People leave with their deli cup and then they stop at Petland or PetSmart on the way home and say, I just got this. What can I, like, what do I need to, to care for this thing? Just like you're saying with those, those chameleon death kits as they're called in the chameleon hobby. So it, and, and I get why, because the animal is cheap. You could buy an animal for $50, but an enclosure could be 100 It could be 200 It could be a couple hundred lights, uh, dollars for lighting and substrate. And it's a lot less fun when you have to include all these extra expenses. It's fun when you can go to the, the expo and buy, you know, spend $50 and get a new animal. But again, you have to ask yourself, is are you doing are your actions only helping yourself or are you doing something that's good for the animal as well? And that's where I always try to, you know, step back and it's like, what, what is good for the animal in this situation? Because they didn't choose to be captive. They have actually sacrificed their freedom, which is a, an incredible sacrifice to make. And as a keeper, you must justify that sacrifice. You, you have no option. You're obligated to to justify the sacrifice of the animal that doesn't have its freedom anymore. And I think too many of us just go into the hobby without thinking about that. And it's exciting to buy a new animal and that's all you're focused on, but we don't step back and think what is best for this creature sitting in the deli cup right now. So yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. It is a little bit backwards. I I think bringing some excitement into enclosure design and, and natural behaviors is the way out because as soon as you get people down that path and they realize I've had so many people reach out to me that go, wow, I listened to your podcast and it's totally changed my perspective. Like I threw out my rack system and I built some enclosures and I just am just enjoying my hobby so much more because I get to see my animals doing what they would in the wild. As soon as someone has that experience, they don't go back. I've never had anybody reach out to me and go, Dylan, I set up a naturalistic enclosure and my snake's doing what it would in the wild and I hate looking at it. You know, like it's just never, that's never going to happen. So as soon as someone gets a, just a taste of that natural behavior, they're never turning back. And, and that will adjust the focus, I think, or, or adjust our compass in the right direction, I think. It is rewarding, even if, I mean, even if it's not necessarily, I mean, like it, it, with frogs, it is relatively easy to get them to kind of engage in natural behavior because, I mean, they're not as derived as many reptiles. I mean, obviously, there's a big difference between a dart frog and say like, like cobras have this like crazy intelligence to them. At least king yeah. cobras do. Or um, like king snakes. My king snake is just, there's more going on there than it is with a lot of my frogs. So I don't feel like I necessarily need to give them as much as another species because they just don't work that way. But one thing that I've been considering more and more as like I've kind of progressed to the hobby is allowing the animals some sort of choice I don't mean like choice to like go and live like a, you know, like a fruitful life, like out in the country, like a person <laughs> would, but allowing them different choices within the, you know, within the vivarium, it also acts as a form of enrichment, which is another topic I wanted to get into with you because uh, I mean, I've talked to other frog keepers about enrichment and like, as far as we go, a lot of the enrichment also comes from the vivarium itself. A lot of the animals have to actively hunt for fruit flies and microfauna and things like that. Plants will bloom. They will, you know, the environment is in a, in a planted vivarium changes pretty consistently. But 
mean, most recently what I did was I had an extra Easter egg and I just tucked the Easter egg in there just to give them something different to look at. You know what I mean? So they had a choice to either go investigate it or leave it alone or whatever. I know that you're a really big proponent of, of enrichment. I mean, do you want to tell us some of your thoughts on the value of enrichment? Yeah. And so it goes back to the fact that we now know these animals are a lot more intelligent than we thought. And, and just to, to stay on your dart frog example, you know, and, and, you know, throwing some pieces of enrichment or things for them to investigate is exactly right. And offering them choice is also, that is enrichment. That is the be- the highest form of captivity, giving the animal choice. And like you said, it's not, you're not giving it ultimate choice to do whatever it wants, but giving it choice within this controlled environment. And, and if, if we look at dart frogs, the enrichment you guys have in the vivariums is really through the roof because the habitats are so complex and the animals themselves take up such a small amount of space within that habitat. It's not compared to a big heavy-bodied snake, you know, to, 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 to put that in perspective or, or proportionally, you would have to have a massive snake enclosure to, to match what those little dart frogs are getting. So, you don't have to go in there and do a bunch of different things because the habitat itself is going to yield natural complex and behaviors as well as that enrichment. So the, the thing is, is we now know these animals can problem solve. They're capable of learning. You know, many people think, well, no, snakes can't learn. No, they, they can learn. You know, if you have a tub keeper, every time I pull out this tub, the snake flies out because he thinks he's going to get food. That's learning. That snake has now learned that when you open the tub, Sometimes food comes out, so I'm going to strike every time it happens. So we know that. And and there's, especially within the last few years, and I always recommend everybody go check out Lori Torini's YouTube channel because she does incredible training with her snakes where she target trains them. She has them following sticks and like a ball on a stick and tapping it for food and all these different things and going through these incredibly complex puzzle feeders and getting better as they go through it. And as I said, they've sacrificed their freedom and a big part of being in the wild is problem solving. They have to use their brain, right? We would say the brain is a muscle. You know, it's not really a muscle, but they still need to work it like a muscle. And if they're not, it has a detriment to their health. The more you can, I don't want to say force, but set, set your animal up in a situation where it must solve a problem, the healthier it's going to be. It's going to expend energy doing that. It's going to be investigating. It's going to be learning new things about its environment. And it, it can be as simple as what you said, place a new object in their environment and it will not take long for them to go investigate it. It's just, that's what they're programmed to do. Maybe they'll you know, spend an hour kind of watching it from a distance, but eventually they'll go, especially snakes are so scent oriented, they'll go and they'll smell it and see what it is. And then eventually they'll leave it alone. But it, it is so important to give them that dynamic environment and, and allow them to use their brain in a way that allows them to problem solve. We as humans use reptiles to problem solve. Because when we're engaging in the hobby, it is problem solving. How am I going to set this enclosure up? How am I going to put this light? What plants am I going to use? How are they going to use this environment? We enjoy problem solving through them. And I think at the very least, we deserve to give them the opportunity to problem solve. They're not going to problem solve like a primate or even a rodent. But you'd be very amazed at how intelligent some of these, like you were talking about elapids. There is some serious intelligence behind some of these animals. and But if, the, if, if you don't give them the opportunity, they'll never... They'll never show that, and it is a detriment in the long term because they just sit there like a bump on a log and and then die, really. Yeah, I think the only thing that makes it a difficult sell, I think that people's attitudes are generally changing because um, 
I mean, even in some of the like the recent literature. I mean, I I often mention uh, Mater's uh, what is it, reptile and amphibian medicine and surgery. Yeah, they do a dedicate a substantial amount of the literature in there to enrichment in captive populations of reptiles and I mean amphibians. I don't. I mean, I just I don't really like to compare reptiles and amphibians because they are really have nothing to do with each other. I mean. We're, reptiles are amniotes, the same as us, the same as birds, whereas amphibians aren't. So they're so far removed from us. But that doesn't mean that they don't have, you know, problem-solving abilities. They, they can't be... I mean, look, when I go up to that vivarium with a couple fruit flies, they know what's coming. You know what I mean? They're not exactly. They're not stupid. They get habituated to it. But I think that the line of thinking in terms of providing some form of enrichment, it's, it, it, it has to be beneficial because, I mean, like I said before about choice, it doesn't even necessarily have to be something positive. Like I was listening to, um, I know I've been mentioning Bill Strand a lot, but in one of Bill's last podcasts, he recommend, he, not recommend, I'm sorry, but he mentioned that, uh, you know, if a hawk flies overhead, that's, it, it's going to initiate some sort of a stress response in a chameleon, which is, you know, not, if it's chronic, then it can be detrimental but if it's just occasional it's going to somewhat you know duplicate what it might have had in the wild so i'm not saying go in there and freak your animals out but (laughs) everything that you put in there might not necessarily be a positive thing but at a very very basic level providing some sort of enrichment at least shakes up the day a little bit i guess you could say Yes. Acute stress is not a bad thing. I mean, that's how you learn. That's how we go through life. You you hit acute uh, moments of acute stress, and that's how the body responds to things. Chronic stress, like you're saying, is a detriment and eventually will kill the animal for one reason or another. And, and when I look at an animal that's just in a tub with uh, no enrichment at all, I see an animal that's likely going to be chronically stressed to the point where it doesn't do anything because it's it, this great term that, that Lori taught me is learned helplessness. So eventually the animal will learn that it doesn't matter what it does to its environment. It has absolutely zero control over its situation and it, it, it'll just shut down and stop trying. And it's really heartbreaking when you think about it that way. And, and that's where I see a lot of animals that are stuck in tubs that don't have any enrichment at all. And you could, like, like I said, simply put something in the tub for it to investigate and it would start to make those gears working. So yeah, acute stress, that stress response is how the animals learn. So it is important. What about the price tag that goes with higher level keeping? I mean, we kind of touched on some of the elements that I guess are crucial to having good husbandry, but I mean, how do you justify the the, the price tag to someone? Because certain manufacturers make some vivariums, they make light bulbs, they make heat stores, they make all sorts of stuff that's pretty expensive. I mean, how do you sell someone on the, the need for higher end gear as opposed to like the starter kit that you get at the big box store? Well, I think the first thing is I think we can't, the hobby can't be for everyone. And it sort of sounds elitist to say, but at the end of the day, it, it is in a luxury to own an exotic animal. That's just the fact. And it doesn't need to be a market where anybody that hasn't spent any time thinking about it can just walk in and, and buy some stuff. I think I don't think I don't see it as a bad thing to have a slight barrier of entry with dollars to make people think before they do. And so, so that's the first thing I would say. And I think you know, for a long time that has been sort of the myth that reptiles are kind of cheap. You can go in and you can just set them up relatively easy. And I, I just I think that's where 
we get stuck because people think they are cheap, then they, they set up this cheap enclosure and then they start looking at the higher price tags and they go, well, I'm definitely not doing that because my animal's doing fine. So I think there is some sort of changes that have to happen there. But I, I think if somebody is passionate about animals and they want to keep a reptile, I personally think they're going to save up money for that. So let's just say instead of the $100 start fee, it's a $500 start fee to, to get a snake. Let's just use an arbitrary number. If I'm a 15-year-old kid and I desperately want my first ball python, I'm going to save. I'm going to save up my birthday. I mean, we all went through a time when we were saving up for something, a couple hundred dollars or something. So I, I don't see that as, as being a huge barrier to entry. I think the very, very cheap price point that we're at right now is a detriment. And is, but, but then this also ties into that sort of idea of progression where I don't need you to start with a $1,000 setup, but I think it would be good if everybody spent a couple of hundred dollars to get started with an enclosure that's a fair size and maybe add some proper lighting and some enrichment into there with some you know climbing branches or whatever it is. So I do hear that a lot where people go, well, how, how am I going to get into the hobby if it's too expensive? Well, I think the answer really is just save. How do we do anything else in life? We save until you can afford to do it. And I think saving does prevent that impulse purchase. And impulse purchasing is one of the the dangers of the hobby. It's one of the one of the areas where we have the worst image, I think, because that, like I was saying at the beginning, with those local classifieds, anybody can go to their local classifieds right now. You're going to find a list of impulse purchases of animals that are not doing well because the people don't know how to care for them and they got tired of them because they only wanted them for about a year. I mean, one of my animals came from a situation just like that, where it was like this random person that was trying to convince me snakes didn't need heat, and it was this whole like strange thing and and I you see that a lot so I think anything we can do to to reduce impulse and maybe have a slightly higher price point is not necessarily a bad thing I think it just will be a slight culture shift in how we approach the the starting fee to get into the hobby yeah you had a I can't remember which what the guest's name but you had a guest on recently on your show and uh, he was talking about large constrictors and how you don't see you, you see people online with pictures of baby retics and mm-hmm. baby berms but you're not seeing photographs of lots and lots of people with 20 foot long retics you're seeing like the same three or four people so where are those snakes going yeah it's the same thing with really anything especially anything that you can kind of consider as like disposable or easily produced like I'll give you I'll give you an example here in the dart frog hobby. I mean, I know on your show you talk about certain species like ball pythons as being kind of like disposable, almost like a I hate to use the term garbage because it's a living thing, but like like a garbage snake. Well, in the dart frog world, there are a, a few locales and species that again, I hate to use the word, I apologize if anyone takes offense to it, but a lot of people consider them garbage species or garbage locales, like Dendrobates erratus. Dendrobates erratus is a cheap you know, easily access, uh, easily purchased species, especially on impulse. Some of the locales, like I think it's like the Costa Rican and the Hawaiian. I mean, they're actually they're introduced into Hawaii, so you're actually getting the only dart frog that exists in the United States, although it's not <laughs> continental. But uh, they're cheap; people can buy them on impulse. And the reason that you're seeing those frogs in a lot of like the YouTube videos where like, like pet tubers and stuff like that is because they can get them pretty much anywhere. And if they die, well, who cares? Because you can get another one for $20 anywhere else. Whereas like the Ophaga Pamilio pair that you pay five grand for, or like, you know, the Ophaga Limani or, or Histrionic or whatever, 
yeah, you're going to seed that person with that frog every day for the next 20 years that that pair lives because there's been a substantial investment in it. So it's, it goes both ways. I mean, like in the reptile world, you guys have, I mean, I've seen it myself. Like, like you know, I mean, I don't even see normal bull pythons anymore at all, but yeah. you know, corn, corn snakes, you can get free. Well, you could get for like 20 bucks. I'm sure like, like lower end ball python morphs, you can get for what, like a hundred bucks, maybe even cheaper. So like, what's the, what's the incentive to take proper care of the animal when it's so cheap? That's my, that's my, that's my issue is like, I put a lot of time and a lot of money into all my frogs, even some of the ones that really aren't particularly high end, like my Azurius, anyone can get Azurius anywhere, but they're mine. I like them. I have them in a really decent sized vivarium, but it just seems like there's way, way too much in the way of like the idea that an animal is disposable out there. And that does a lot of damage to the hobby because they're just replaceable. You know what I mean? You can get the same animal over and over and over and you're really not learning anything about its care if you just keep replacing it because it keeps dying. Yeah, exactly. And you know, the the big snake one is a good example because these people that own big snakes want big snakes. So if you don't see people showing pictures of the big snakes, it's because they aren't out there. And I, I really don't like big snakes in the hobby. I think it's not a good thing. I think there are some people that can do a good job with it, but it should not be a norm. And I mean, we can even look at ball pythons and I think a ball pythons a great species. I think it's just been totally exploited to the point where, yeah, you could classify them as a garbage species. Not that we personally think that it's just, that's the way the hobby treats them, especially when you get into normals and whatnot. And this is an animal that on record we've found specimens or, or, or individuals that have lived 50, 60 years. So w- what's happening there? Why, why are, where are all of these old ball pythons? And I think there's this over emphasis on babies, especially in the morph side. It's like, look at this baby, look how cool it looks. And as they, and, and then overemphasize on everybody wanting to get into to breed as well. So everybody's breeding, everybody's producing these animals. And we have, ball pythons and corn snakes that are just saturated to the point where, yeah, they've become this extremely low-valued animal. And why would you go spend $800 on a setup when the animal literally costs you $15? And I was talking to one of my buddies in South Africa, and he was telling me there it can even be worse. He said you can buy a diamond, like a rattlesnake, like a Western diamondback rattlesnake for, I think it was like $15, crazy things like that. So there are some, I think we should have higher price points on the animals to reduce that well, it is tough. I mean, I, I, I do see a lot of this going back to, and I hate to beat on the morphs. I think some morphs are really cool, but I think in a lot of ways it, it has, you know, been a dark side of the hobby because so many people get into breed. And I think this idea where everybody can get in and produce is, is a problem. And so the example that I always use is when you have a clutch of ball pythons, let's just say you have eight ball python eggs, you know, each of those ball pythons should live for 40 years. So you've created 320 years worth of ball python in one clutch. So that's what you're responsible for. And I just don't think people think about it far enough. And I, I was talking to a reptile, a reptile rescue the other day, and she's saying, you know, we are totally swamped with ball pythons. We're actually turning them away at this point because we just can't keep them anymore. So, which of course drops the price. It, it, it is very tough. And I know that people do love that whole morph side, but I don't think it's necessarily done us any favors. Yeah, I have my own feelings on it. Just to put this into perspective, like when I got into the hobby, some of the animals that we have in the trade now were, were like 
it might be as well be a unicorn. All right. Right. The the first bearded dragon that I ever saw was in a book about wildlife in my grandparents' den from like 1974, something like that. And I saw this picture of a bearded dragon. I was like, oh my God, this thing's incredible. But I was like, I'm probably never going to see one. So, you know, a couple of years later, I, I bought my daughter's one for Christmas. And they're like, oh, well, what morph do you want? I'm like, I want a wild type. He goes, yeah. why? I said, because I want a wild type. Because when I was a kid, this was a dream animal for me. And I still appreciate the fact that it just looks the way it would in, in nature. That's awesome enough. And the same thing with ball pythons. I, my first snake was a ball python in, I want to say, 90, maybe 95, 96 or so. I, mean, I didn't have it very long because my parents weren't big on snakes and I had to, uh, I had to rehome it to a friend. But, um, at the time I was, this was the most amazing thing in the world. It's like, I have a ball python, you know? Yeah. And I never in my wildest dreams expected it to turn into the phenomenon that it is today. But I mean, as far as the morph thing goes, it, you're right. It's like, it's like being like a kid in a candy store. You got to get everything. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's like a human nature thing. So I, I think I associate it closely with that want to buy another animal and another animal just to sort of fulfill that enjoyment of the hobby. I think morphs fill that role in almost a better way where, especially if you're a breeder, you get to, you know, do your Punnett square and think, you know, what is this going to produce if I mix this morph and this morph? And there's a, a sense of excitement there, or maybe like a little bit of gambling in a way. And I, I know that the feeling of cutting eggs must be super exciting to see if you've hit your whatever you're trying to produce. And I think I, I'm still trying to come up with a way to describe this in a way where morph breeders will not be offended by it because, because I'm trying to understand what, or I'm trying to, I don't even know how to word it. Like the behavior that they're engaging in is strange. I think that that's one way to put it. I mean, you could also say the behavior of going to buy 70 snakes over a year and a half is strange too. So, and, and I, and I call that behavior out as well. I think that's not good. And then somebody who's breeding a whole bunch of different colors of snakes is strange. So my question to them is why are you doing that? What, what is exciting about that? And then they would list some things that's exciting to them, but not necessarily great for the animal. And again, that question that I always ask myself is, is the behavior you're engaging in beneficial to the animal or is it only beneficial to you? And if it's only beneficial to you, we really need to question ourselves, is this the right thing? And I'm working on a video right now that I, I still haven't quite polished off the script yet, but you know, there's especially in the morph market, it's strange. So you can take something like a stormtrooper ball python, which is a ball python that's black and white, and people really like this snake. And uh, it's an interesting looking morph. And then I look at a California king snake and I go, that looks the same. <laughs> you know, it's a black and white snake. So why are we creating this black and white snake on the ball python side? Why don't you keepers just enjoy the black and white snakes that already exist? And I think there's the the creation part of it and you know this all these extra things that i think if people step back and they would realize wow all of this behavior i'm engaging in is for myself and it's not helping out the animals and it's the animals that need to come first and that's just as simple as that there is a parallel though in the darfrog world with with the locales i mean even though i went on this last that last tirade about morphs but uh, when a new locale comes in it is very highly sought after but it can also come at a very very high price the thing is, though, it's not it's not a man-made construct, meaning you're not selectively breeding frogs for a certain color pattern. They just exist like that in the wild. So, you know, if there's a new import or something like that or a new locale is discovered or whatever, 
uh, yeah, there can be a, a very, very high demand for that and a, such a very high price tag. And some people are great with it because, again, it's, it's you know, no one's going to throw away a $5,000, like, large obligate, which is be like, usually something you know, something in the, you know, in the Ophaga genus or, or a Ratatomei or whatever, or even Tinctoris. But there can be a, and I'm guilty of this myself, there can be that, that collector bug, just like in the snake world where you want everything. I mean, I already have blue frogs. I have Azurius, which are as blue as you could possibly get. Yet there are other blue frogs out there that I must admit I do want. I'm not going to get them because I'm maxed out right now. I have my own little projects that I've been adding to, but you know, you're right. Like it's, it's at the end of the day, it's a black snake. It's a blue frog. So how do you rein it in to the point where it doesn't become like an out of control? Um, you know, your, your collection gets too big for you to match because you're so focused on collecting everything. Yeah. So maybe it's more so wanting the rare object rather than creating the rare object or so that's probably, yeah, it's probably a little bit of everything. And, and it's clearly not about the animal in general, especially in the ball python world, if you're putting it into a tub. Like, there's no way you can tell me you enjoy the behavior of a ball python if you keep it in a rack system because you just don't see it and you don't see it behaving. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting topic. And I think, yeah, there is that collector mindset that drives it. So it would be tough to reverse that, I think. Just, I mean, a, a hypothetical question. I don't know if you, how you feel about this or not, but... Do you think that there should be more species available in the hobby? Yeah, I do. And I think that's what I'm going to tie this video in, talking about morphs. And maybe we can divert some of that energy to create new morphs into bringing in new species. Like There are so many amazing ball python breeders out there who work with these animals and understand how they work and, and are very careful with the eggs and incubation temperatures and whatnot. How come... Why can't we get some of you guys to work with some a fresh wild caught couple pair, you know, some species that we just bring in and, and see if you can tinker with that and establish more? Because I, I do really think that diversity is exciting and it, it allows us to not interbreed or inbreed these animals to death by producing morphs. Maybe we can focus on having different species and, you know, there's a species out there for everybody. There's behavior out there for everybody. There's a, if you like green snakes, there's so many different green snakes you can get. There's diurnal ones that are very active. There's nocturnal ones that are not inactive and there's everything in between. And if we had more options, then somebody could go to the, to a breeder or go to a form and say, Hey, this is the characteristics of a snake that I'm looking for. What species do you recommend? Rather than saying, I want you know, a snake that looks like this, I'm just gonna go pick up a ball python morph that looks like it and not necessarily enjoy it. Like I, I have a, I always talk about this. I have a Brazilian rainbow boa. I wouldn't say she was an impulse buy, but I wasn't really thinking. I was sort of in that early mindset of just buying things that I thought looked cool. And I do not see this snake. I see her maybe once a month. She pokes her head out, but I'm a early riser and I go to bed pretty early. She is like out at probably between 1130 at night and two or three in the morning. So I literally do not see this snake. I only interact with her when I feed her and that's no fun for me. So if I had known that I would have gone <clears throat> Brazilian rainbow boas, they look amazing. They look really cool, but they're not for me. I would like something that is more active. So and I think bringing species diversity into the trade or into the herpetoculture in general gives us more of sort of a breadth of options. And it's also good for, I think, that image that we're trying to portray. If we have people working with, you know, wild caught lines and keeping the bloodlines clean, we can show all these species have different pockets in the private sector that are direct descendants and they're not mixed up from 
wild populations. Yeah, that's another thing. I mean, people often criticize keeping animals in captivity because it's it's sloppy from a, I guess, a record-keeping level. If you're going to have someone who's going to be raising animals in a laboratory, they're going to be keeping records, they're going to have quarantine procedures, they're going to, you know, I mean, like, whereas in the hobby, we don't really keep those records all the time. But you're right, if you were able to develop that on a higher level, I mean, at least in my opinion, I think that you could get more recognition from other aspects of the animal world, like conservationists and whatnot, because look, no one's going to want to no one's going to want to release an animal of of questionable genetic integrity back into the wild. It's just not going to happen. You know what I mean? But exactly. can you ma- can you maintain a population in captivity successfully? Who knows? You know, I mean, take for example, take the axolotl. The axolotl is functionally extinct in the wild, yet they're everywhere. You know what I mean? It's probably the most commonly kept amphibian species in the world. Or at least here in the U.S. anyway, I should say. Yeah, so at the very least, we could say it's not extinct. It's not ideal that it's not in the wild, but at least it's not extinct. And and yeah, I think there's a lot of people that have sort of a, they look at it through rose-colored lens and think, oh, I'm just going to you know keep a clean line and then we can go rewild these species. And it's definitely not as easy. Although I do have friends in, in England who are actively rewilding some captive red animals or, or going to be. And that's a whole ball of wax and there's lots of things that go into that. But I think we were talking about before, I think before we started rec- recording that you had, I forget his name, is it Nick from the Abronia Alliance or? Yeah, Nick Gordon. Yeah, so he's Alliance. a perfect example of a private sector project that is actively working at conservation and whether or not those animals, you know, are they going to be released into the wild? Probably not, but they're at least that invisible Noah's Ark concept where we have a pocket of clean lines that are going to exist on the earth after we've destroyed, unfortunately destroyed their, their natural habitat. Yeah. And like I said, that's also an important concept in the dark frog world because you could look, you could go to an area in Peru or Ecuador or wherever, and you could see a, a locale of a certain species. Let's just, I'll pick an arbitrary genus. Let's just say like Ranatomea. You could find a locale of Ranatomea you see it once. Okay, I'll tell you what, I'm going to go back and come back next year and you come back next year. And now it's like a palm oil plantation and all the frogs are gone because they only existed in that one area. So that's why like with us, we want to maintain that genetic integrity as best as possible because, I mean, we're not talking about like a country here. We're talking about an area that could be really, really tiny and these frogs are gone. So I can only imagine how many locales and potential species were out there that existed that got wiped out before anyone even laid eyes on them. Exactly. Yeah. So I think a push for more species diversity helps that. It helps us people going out and looking for different species. And and, I mean, if it's a new species that's not in the private sector, it's going to fall into the hands of a very advanced keepers, which is what we want. And and I think it can only be a good thing as long as we're not, you know, poaching from the wild and, and taking way too many. I think as long as it's done properly and selectively, it can be a good thing. And, and to me, I think pushing for smaller species in herpetoculture is a would be much better. We have way too many giant species that has just gone out of control and we need to start tilting it back towards smaller species, species that are more manageable for people to keep. I think even even boas, I keep boas and I think those are like right on the tip, the sort of the, the cap of how big a snake should be in captivity and not for everybody, but just saying it is a general sort of rule. I mean, I, I like the dart frog example. That's a tiny little frog in a fairly large enclosure. You could not replicate that with most reptile species, especially when you get into the big constrictors and the large monitors and whatnot. So there are so many smaller, interesting species that are not big in the hobby yet that would be a massive benefit to to everybody. 
That's a good way of thinking about it. I mean, the, the, the whole idea of the spectacle of, of large constrictors, because when I was a kid, I, I, w- I must admit, I was real tempted. I was tempted to get a berm or a tick because they were readily available everywhere. A lot of the species now that are probably going to end up being, uh, I, I hate to say it because there are a lot of people who do a lot of good work with them. And I, you know, again, if this comes off as harsh against snake people, I don't want it to come off that way. But there is a substantial, I mean, even in New York state, most of the large constrictor species are illegal. So you can't, yeah. you can't buy retics or berms or, I mean, Afri- I don't know who the hell works with African rock pythons anymore. I saw one once when I was a kid, but, uh, and yellow anacondas, green anacondas, despite the fact that they're gigantic compared to yellows finally got added to that list. But there is a reality that here in the U S a lot of these snakes won't be available for sale. I mean, who knows in 20 years, they might be completely legal, but just to rein it in here, I was tempted when I was younger because they were everywhere. And I kept telling myself, you know what? Like I, I can't handle this thing. I'm not going to be able to have enough room for a 12 foot snake or, or larger. You know, where am I going to put it? How am I going to, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not able to handle it. So I never did that. But, you know, how do you tell someone? No, you know what I mean? Like I'm more of a proponent of suggesting to someone, Hey, listen, you know what? Maybe you should think this through a little bit. Is it right for you? Is it really appropriate rather than taking that right away? But at the same time, I know my limits, yes. you know what I mean? So, I mean, it doesn't make me anyone special, but the largest snakes that I keep, I, I keep blood pythons, which is a lot of snake. It, it is, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a big snake, but it's in a smaller package than any of the, you know, the, the typical large constrictors. Yeah. And I, I'm not for overbearing regulation and whatnot. I think it's more of a culture thing in, in herpetoculture that needs to change. We don't, it shouldn't be that those are. You shouldn't be able to walk into an expo and see a table of retic babies. You should that should be like a very niche part of the hobby where it's only you know for people that have the space to do it. And and I, I did a video on my channel talking about the volume of a snake, how much volume a snake takes up, and how important it is to understand that when a snake increases in girth, it's taking up a ton, a lot more volume. So like your blood python, for example, maybe it's four or five feet, but if you took a four or five foot corn snake it's going to be taking up like a fifth of the volume just because they're so much more slender. So when you take a massive Burmese python, for example, and say, okay, it's 10 feet long, I'm going to give it a 10 foot enclosure. That's not the same as giving a corn snake a five foot long enclosure. A corn snake in a five foot long enclosure has a lot more space because it's so slender. And when it curls up, it's only going to take up a small fraction of the enclosure where a berm in a 10 foot enclosure, when it coils up, it's going to be taking up a much larger proportion of that enclosure. And I think, yeah, I I just think as, as a culture, we want to shift away from those. They're amazing animals. I went, I went through a period where I really wanted a reticulated python as well. And I just realized like, that's just it's just too much snake. It's just too much snake for the average person. And there's just so many other cool species out there that are much smaller, stay between the four, four to six foot range that the average person could keep and give them ample space, which is at the end of the day, what we're talking about offering higher level care. It's much difficult, much more difficult to do when you're dealing with a 15 foot animal. Definitely. I mean, the, the, the nice thing about bloods though, is that very, very few people like to work with them because they kind of have this reputation as being temperamental, Yeah. but they are way less active than berms and way less active than corns and kings. Yes. Yeah. Activity level does play a huge role in that as well. So there's a whole bunch of factors and yeah, blood pythons kind of just, 
slugged their way through life and <laughs> and they're and they're they're intimidating everyone likes the but i don't know I, I i like mine but i wanted to ask you what's the hobby like in canada because here in the u.s it's like the wild west it varies from state to state and it's it's kind of nutty i'm just curious you know what what a canadian's perspective is on the hobby in your country well there is it, there is a ton of variation as well it depends you know, we have provinces instead of states, and within the provinces, we have municipalities and cities, and those will all have different rules. Some will have no rules, and they'll just have like very limited pet, you know, pet rules, and some will have very strict rules. The the province next to me, just I think last week, just released a positive reptile list, meaning they made a, a you know bureaucrats make a random list of reptile species that they will allow their citizens to keep, and it's just a very limited list and. And before that, they couldn't even keep any boa or python. So ball pythons, for example, were illegal illegal there, yet you could own uh, an alligator. <laughs> you know, there's this like, really horrible rules because lawmakers don't know exactly what they're doing. So it really depends on where you live and sort of what pocket and what province you live in. Some places are very open. Some are very restrictive. So I would say that's probably one thing. Um, just in, in general, in Canada, we don't have... I don't want to say we don't have the same amount of rights as the United States, but it's, it's structured differently in a way. You know, the, the Constitution, I think, in the States does seemingly give a little bit more freedom, although like you're experiencing now in the States, there's lots of le- legislation that's coming down and, and impacting the hobby. So that's kind of what we've been dealing with for a long time. We've always had fairly heavy-handed restriction. Um, and, and then just in general, being a keeper in Canada, everything is it's smaller, you know, there's, it's, it's a much smaller community. It's, uh, I live in the, in the middle of the country that to the next city is going to be like a six or seven hour drive. That would be the next small city. So it's not, it's not easy to move animals across the, you know, trade animals with people and get together with other keepers. It's also more difficult to find equipment. Things are more expensive here. Just in general, there's, you know, we can't support as much reptile industry, meaning there's not going to be as much equipment making it up to the border. Some, you know, one thing that people don't often think about is because we're a bilingual country, most products sold in this country need to have a bilingual label and a, a bilingual instruction manual. And some companies just aren't willing to do that because what's the point, you know, even on YouTube, when I look at my analytics, like 85% of my audience is American. So if for, for these companies, you know, to make an extra 2% of sales, they're not going to mess around making a special label just for Canadian customers. So it can be difficult to find products too. Not that we can't buy American products. It's just they're not often carried here. So there are definitely some differences. I would say there's also less species diversity, which we are working on now. There's a couple great people in the country that are doing a great job bringing in some new species. It's just everything is a little bit smaller and fewer and far between. So I would say there's some challenges. I always am just amazed at these expos that are in the United States. I just can't imagine. The only expo I've ever been to is like in a school gym and there's like 10 tables. It's a great little expo for where I am, but I've never experienced these mammoth expos that you guys have in the States. So one day I'll have to check them out. Yeah, it's the the expos that I've been to a couple of expos on the East Coast here. I've never been to some of the bigger ones. And and I think the biggest one I think is in Illinois, but I know in Germany, there's one that's like the hugest, like it's like the biggest expo in the entire world. Yeah, people ham. come there from like, oh, yeah, yeah. They come from all over the world to, to purchase things. But I I did want to, something you just said actually kind of interested me. And um, really with regards to legislation, I always thought that, you know, high level, ke- high level keeping can be 
a good tool or a good arrow to have in your quiver when it comes to defending the hobby to detractors, especially like politicians and whatnot. Because here in the U.S., the story is pretty consistent. I don't know if you guys have this problem in Canada, but you'll have one situation that's going to make headlines. It's usually like some bozo abandons a berm in like a community park or somebody leaves an alligator in a parking lot somewhere, okay? Which is obviously wrong because it calls unnecessary attention to the hobby and it makes it bad for the rest of us. Or, you know, you'll have someone get caught coming to the country with a hundred frogs duct taped to his legs. This stuff happens here. It happens pretty consistently. My problem though is that issue always adversely affects the hobbyist. But I feel like if high level keeping becomes a standard that will hopefully not be so much of a problem anymore because you won't have people who are casually abandoning animals. But the other thing is, whenever something like that happens, okay, the media never goes to find a responsible hobbyist. They always go to some elected official or a law enforcement or some scientist or whoever, someone who has absolutely no knowledge of the hobby whatsoever to provide commentary on why this is wrong. Okay. As a hobbyist, I want to tell people why that's wrong. I don't want someone else who has no idea about the hobby coming in and criticizing it. I feel like we should be policing our own people because people like that ultimately ruin it for everybody else. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, but it, it, I feel exactly the same way. I think that, for one, having more responsibility over the hobby by keeping the animals better. Having a higher level of welfare is super important because it gives us more credibility. And then also, I think that connection needs to be made. Someone who I've, I've had on the podcast, Ryan McVeigh, who's, he, he's, he works for Zilla. I'm not sure exactly what his position, position is there. I forget. But anyway, he does a lot of that work where he sits down with legislators and talks to them and, and figures out what exactly are you trying to make these rules do. And I, I think it's exactly right. We need to have, as, as a community, and this is where Herp Societies come into play, having that connection with the government because the government will tend to just make rules and then just then then wait for people to complain about them you know they just sort of do stuff and then see well, we'll see if anybody notices this especially when it comes to animal keeping and and exactly like you said they always have some random guy who's like yeah these animals should not be kept in captivity this is ridiculous and we never get our say we can't lay out those four pillars that i said that are really important you know conservation adding to science introducing people to animals and giving people responsibility like though those four things don't get brought up in those meetings so i always say that the best thing we can do is make our hobby seem high level enough where people can look at us and go, wow, those people are engaging in something that's really special. They're engaging with nature. I think people, anybody has a reverence for nature. They're going to look at something that looks natural and they're going to be excited by it. And I think that will allow the public to look at us with a little more respect. Like, you know, I always say you don't want to leave your neighbor to figure out or to come to their own conclusion why you keep 10 snakes or 20 snakes in your basement because they're going to come to their own horrible conclusion. You want to show what you're doing and and make it so you, you know, there's a respect for the animal and you're setting them up in a way. So I think having a connection with the government and the politicians helps that so you can maybe help them make those legends. And I know this is what Ryan does a lot of, or when when these things come up is they sit down and and they go, okay, what rule are you trying to make here? Because the rule that you've written is sort of ridiculous. Like no venomous or constricting 
reptiles. Okay, well, these people now can own alligators. So what what are you trying to do with this rule? If you're trying to make it so people can't own big snakes, well, we'll help you write that rule so it doesn't impact the trade or herpetoculture, but it does do what you're looking for. Because like you said, there's always some strange story of somebody doing something stupid with an animal and they just attack it all. So us having credibility and us having respect for the animals and being responsible for herpetoculture really will go a long way. I mean, in some days we have no chance because the government will just make these rules. But I think the best thing we can do is, is be responsible and show that what we're doing is beneficial for the animals and why it would be actually a detriment to remove it. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, that's, that's also part of my New York temper flaring up <laughs> stuff like that. It just, it, 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 it pisses me off to no end. And I always tell people like, look, you know what? Don't be that guy or that girl. Like if you're going to try and defend the hobby, do it with a suit and tie on. You know what I mean? Don't do it with a snake wrapped around your neck or like, you know, a frog on your shoulder. Don't do that because that's when you lose credibility. If you want to establish yourself as being a high level entity that is really, really dedicated to proper husbandry and care of a variety of exotic animals, you have to have this really stellar reputation because if you go at it looking like a stereotype, that's how you're going to get treated. Exactly. I'm the crazy frog guy in the neighborhood. That's who I am. But the thing is, if I'm going to, if I have to, not that I would ever really have to do this per se, but you know, if I ever have to defend myself, I mean, look, I'm wearing a suit. I'm going in prepared. I'm not just going to be like, Hey man, frogs are awesome because then you look like an idiot. Yeah, exactly. And I always say like, imagine that, and sometimes this actually happens, but imagine that we're in this fictional court setting and we have a lawyer that's going in to defend reptile keeping and he's got his briefcase or his folder full of information. We want that folder full of high level keeping natural replication, conservation, science, you know, introducing kids to animals. We want all of that in there so he can sit through or she or she, the fictional lawyer, can sit through that and talk to the government and say, this is what you'd be giving up if you cut this off. We don't want it to be a folder full of ball python morphs and racks, you know, and the snake hanging around the neck. It just, it's going to get us nowhere. We need to show some value beyond just the interest of us keeping. It needs to be bigger than that. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree hundred percent. It's just, it's the alternative is just bad for business and it's just not going to be, not going to be sustainable in the long term. Cause just like everything else, yep. you have to sell it. You know, if you're going to justify anything at all in the world, you have to put a spin on it that sells. And I feel like what we're doing now isn't working, at least here in the U S because things are getting ugly here with legislation. And a lot of it is a knee jerk response because people just don't understand the amount of effort that goes into the hobby. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, the sort of the same stuff happened here is the animal rights groups really jumped on COVID hard. And I know that's what happened in the States, especially in New York, I think, with, you know, stopping exports or imports of, of exotic animals and whatnot, relating it to zoonotic diseases. And, and they just took that and ran with it with zero evidence. And they have this big flag that says reptiles cause COVID or something. And it works for the most part because it scares people and they go, yeah, why would anybody need to be importing snakes from across the world? It doesn't make any sense. And we need to be there and go, whoa, 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 let me explain to you why this makes sense and why COVID didn't come from a, a cobra like the original you know, thought was from you know, 14, 15 months ago. I could... I'm I'm not even going to get into that topic because I could go on and on and on. But just to give you some perspective about how weird laws are, okay, I, I don't know if this is a national, I know this is in New York State. 
it is, and this has been since the 70s, it's illegal to sell an aquatic turtle, or really any, any, any turtle, tortoise, or terrapin, with a shell diameter of less than four inches. Now, you guys have that law in Canada? I, I don't know if we have that law in Canada. I've heard many people on my podcast state it, so I assume it's a national law in the United States. I don't know what our, our rule is here, though. The re- you want to know the reason why? It was kids putting in their mouth or something, right? Yeah. A health commission <laughs> in the 70s found that turtles, which they do carry salmonella, but apparently you can only get salmonella if you put a four-inch wide turtle in your mouth <laughs> and not an eight-inch turtle. Or it, it just it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. But because the fear of salmonella went into people's heads, that gave that law fire, and it's still on the books today. Which, yes. in my opinion, is is thoroughly ridiculous. The only benefit I can see to that, though, is uh, it's making turtles less of an impulse purchase because we all know that uh, that little one or two inch diameter turtle that you used to buy at well Woolworths, which hasn't been in business for years, but there used to be a department store called Woolworths. You'd buy a little turtle in a little bowl, and that was like the disposable pet at the time. So, in in a way, that's kind of a blessing in disguise, but. You know, it's just, it, it's a bizarre law. Yeah. Yeah. It's just one of those things that, I mean, they always bring up the salmonella thing. And I was actually just doing some research on that myself because I was trying to think like, how many salmonella cases are linked to reptiles? And I think in Canada, it was like a hundred in the year. And there's like 25,000 cases that have happened, salmonella cases in one year. So it's a tiny fraction. And I think it said like red onions cause like 10 times more than reptiles, you know? <laughs> so they just, they pick one small thing and, and then run with it. Yeah, yeah. Like here in the U.S., we had E. coli and romaine lettuce right. repeatedly. So <laughs> you're more likely to, to contract E. coli from um, eating a salad, eating a salad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which you wouldn't expect. But Well, we're, we're kind of at the end here, but Dylan, is there anything else that you wanted to add before we, before we wrap up? Anything else that you wanted to touch on? I think we pretty much hit everything. I think just you know reiterating my, my main message, which is progressing your care. Don't let your care stay static. doesn't matter what you're caring for. If it's dart frogs or reptiles, there's always going to be something you can do to improve it. It doesn't have to happen every single day, maybe quarterly, every every couple of months you, you make a change. And there's always new information coming about natural habitats or, or better husbandry tactics or techniques. So keep your, your finger on the pulse there. And, and when you can make the upgrade, do it because it, that's where the value and the excitement comes from the hobby. So, or in any hobby really, but it's particularly herpetoculture. So that's what I would think I would close with. I agree. I agree. Uh, it's definitely been an, an interesting and enlightening conversation. So Dylan, uh, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. It's been really, uh, it's been a good, it's been a fun show. Thank you so much for having me. This was an absolute blast. I'm glad. Yeah, I like doing collaborations with other podcasters. So yeah, maybe we'll do something again in the future. Yeah, I'll have to get you on my show as well. Cool. I look forward to that. All right, everyone. So I want to thank you all for listening. Um, I know this was a little bit of a different show, but I hope you guys all were able to take something away from it. Uh, I know I did. And, um, you know, hope you guys enjoyed it. Catch up with you guys again soon. Take care out there. <laughs>